It used to be that food in Britain was greasy and bland. Then people started to move in from the colonies. Today, you're as likely to find a good curried chicken on the pub menu as fish and chips. They love it. It's become the food of the masses. Madhur Joffrey joins us in the hour ahead to point out how the spices of India have become part of the palate of Britain. They've worked out their own way of eating Indian food. It's not necessarily the Indian way. And a global coffee broker explains how you can get a taste of the rich traditions of the world's coffee-growing cultures as a Java tracker. Coffee is the second most heavily traded commodity in the world, second only to oil. Dean Saikon of Dean's Beans tells us how the cup you brew each morning can connect you with the traditions of coffee country around the world, like in Ethiopia. They drink each cup with a blessing attached to it, and that's how they start their day. Coffee, curry, and the kindness of people wherever you go. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Even if you take it black, there's a lot you probably didn't expect that goes into the coffee you drink. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, a coffee broker tells us how contemporary issues in the world's coffee-growing regions impact the coffee industry and how your next cup of coffee can make a positive difference far away from home. We'll also check in with listeners in a bit with fun stories from their travels. Let's start with a delightful woman you've probably seen on TV or in one of the Merchant Ivory movies. And if you have an Indian cookbook at home, there's a good chance Madhur Joffrey wrote it. Her recent book and British TV special called Curry Nation shows how a good chicken tikka masala just might be replacing fish and chips as the favorite dish in Britain. Madhur, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. Madhur, when you think about the British love of Indian food, um, how do you explain that? Well, I think, secretly, between you and me, that it's a reverse colonization. We've come in, we've swooped down, and said, we'll get you one way or the other. I love that. When, you know, it's so interesting. There is that sort of poetic justice, you know. We're, you, you colonize us now. It's your turn. It's your turn. And we've done it very nicely with food. That's no a, guns. That's a nice way to do it. And I, I think you've got willing, uh, willing subjects now. But I have to tell you a story right here. You talked about no more fish and chips and chicken tikka masala instead. Uh-huh. I went to Glasgow. We were filming Curry Nation. It's a 10-part series for British uh-huh. TV. And I was determined to find out what this thing that I'd heard about, that everybody (laughs) was eating chips with curry sauce. I said, what is that? What is chips with curry sauce? I know chips. English people eat fish and chips and chips with vinegar or whatever. But chips with curry sauce? So we go into (laughs) this, they call it a chippy, which is a place that has deep fried pizzas and it has chips with curry sauce. So I go in and the camera's with me, we're filming, and I go and ask, can I have uh, chips with curry sauce? And they said, sure. So this order comes in and there are these chips with this glutinous yellow sauce on top. And I asked the manager, who happens to be Turkish, which is what's happened to Britain now. The manager's Turkish and he says to me, madam, this is your curry sauce. I said, could you show me how you make it? So he takes me into a back room and there he has a, a pail and a kettle with hot water that he, electric kettle. So he boils up hot water, takes a can, opens it, and takes out two big scoops of this yellow powder, puts it in the pail on the floor, then puts the water in, then he has a blender stick, and he goes brrr into the pail, and he said, that's the curry sauce. (laughs) And I said, wonder what this tin is. And I look at the tin, I turn it around, and it says, curry sauce made in China. (laughs) <laughs> no, no. So that is what the British are eating. They want the flavor of Indian food. And they have resorted to this is one of the many ways that's so desperate for Indian flavor. With a Turkish restaurateur. With a Turkish, he was poor whipping guy, up he was Chinese, just a manager. Wi- wi- yeah, not a restaurateur might be saying too much, yes. but whipping up Chinese uh, tin yeah. of faux Indian And they have worked curry. out their own way of eating curry. Well, how would you make a better curry, though? Make a better sauce. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Go from scratch. I was working in a film in England, and my makeup girl was from uh, Wales. And she told me the story that a friend of hers in Wales, an actor, was visiting her in London. So he said, oh, I must have some good Indian food. This must be London must have the best Indian food. So she said, I'll take you to a restaurant. She took him to a restaurant, and he ordered chicken vindaloo off and off. So the waiter looked very startled, and he said, you want chicken vindaloo? 
It's a chicken vindaloo off and off. So it turns out that what he wanted was chicken vindaloo on a bed of half rice and half chips, which is how they eat it in Wales. So they've worked out their own way of eating Indian food. It's not necessarily the Indian way. Right. England has worked out its own relationship with Indian food, but they love it. It's become the food of the masses. It really is English cuisine almost now. Right. For example, every Thursday is curry night at the pubs. Mm-hmm. And the pub food is incredible. I think what the English couldn't handle was Indian food being so varied. So what is it? We want to standardize it. So then they standardized it in terms of heat. So what they've done is chicken korma is the mildest. Uh Chicken vindaloo and chicken madras, as they call it, is the hottest. (laughs) So I have been to restaurants where it's so fiery, I can't eat it because it's just chili powder. And I remember talking to it like a 14-year-old boy. And he said to me very proudly, this was in a pub where Thursday's families can come and eat. He said, I've graduated from chicken uh, korma to chicken vindaloo. As if that was a triumph. As if it was a triumph. (laughs) I traveled with a guy from India once, and he had his own little vial of spice. And it was very hot. And he couldn't get stuff hot enough. So whenever we went out, whatever it was, pizza or you name it, he'd put his spice But you see, those spices are mixed together in the appropriate way. It's not okay. just chili powder. So it's not just cranking so up the heat. Some people just put chili powder. Okay. I, friends of mine, including the conductor Zubin Mehta, carries around his own little silver box <laughs> of chilies. But these are mixed powders that they make in South India, which are absolutely wonderful. But they have other things in them, too. We're saving the spices in India with one of the world's authorities on Indian cuisine right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest, Madhur Jafri, describes growing up in British India in her memoir called Climbing the Mango Trees. Her cookbooks include At Home with Madhur Jafri and Curry Nation, in which she explores Britain's 100 favorite curries. You've probably also seen Madhur's work as an actress in the movies or on TV's Law & Order. Her website is madhurjafri.com. That's spelled M-A-D-H-U-R-J-A-F-F-R-E-Y. Madhur, you write very... um, sweetly about actually not knowing how to cook until you went to England as a student in 1957 and then learning to cook Indian food almost because you missed it so much after dealing with the British food. Tell us well, a little bit about that's that. that's absolutely true. I was around 20 and I, my father put me on a boat, a P&O liner that took me to Britain. I was going to drama school and I arrived and I realized that fish and chips were very good at that time. I could have that. But there was not much else that I enjoyed eating, and I missed, I really missed the food of India, of my home. And I wanted to recreate it, but I just, I couldn't make tea, I couldn't make rice, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't cook. I had not learned how to cook. And were there Indian restaurants in England back then? They were, but they were terrible. I think there were two in London at that time. Right, okay. But they were really bad, and they didn't, they didn't taste of home. They tasted of some generic something, I don't know, but not really of Indian food. So then I started writing letters to my mother and saying, please teach me how to cook. And I said, I would like to learn these recipes. And I told her one was a cauliflower dish, one was a lamb dish, and uh, one was a potato dish, I remember. And she sent me three-line recipes, take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and I recreated them in my kitchen. But I remember the taste, so I could get it right. Oh, so you had the ingredients, but you had to jigger it until it matched the taste you remembered. That I remember. Because you wrote so beautifully. You, You wrote, when I left... India to study in England, I could not cook at all, but my palate had already recorded millions of flavors from cumin to ginger. They were all in my head, waiting to be called into service. Right. That's exactly how it works. And it must have been such a blessing to have your mother's letters that's to give right. you the key. Exactly. To recreating that's all they, that's exactly these, you especially had to hit after it on the eating head. that English cuisine yes. in 1950s. And it was, was see ah. through roast beef gray, <laughs> cabbage boiled for 10 days, potatoes boiled for another 20 days. Just really not good food. It was just after the war and really not good food. So it was a revelation that I could make it myself. And I got better and better and better and learned more and more dishes. So I'm self-taught. And I think (laughs) one of the reasons why my books work is that I write as an ignorant person for other ignorant people. That's very important. It is. Because it's accessible then. It seems like a lot of Indian restaurants are 
Bangladeshi. They're owned, owned by, by Bangladeshis. Oh, okay. A lot of them were owned by Bangladeshis at a certain time, and they all served a, a sort of Xeroxed uh, right. menu right. of the same dishes that were not Bangladeshi at all. They were mm. just a generalized North Indian menu. It wasn't very good. Mm -hmm. So for Bangla, I can tell you where you should go. For Bangladeshi food, if you wanted true Bangladeshi okay. food, you'd go to the East End. Mm -hmm. So you have to look for specific restaurants. Are they Pakistani-owned? Mm -hmm. If they are, are they famous for serving Pakistani dishes? Mm -hmm. Go to regional places. There's a great place in London called Gujarati Rasoid. It's known for Gujarati food. Okay. So I would go for specifics. I would go for South Indian food to South Indian places. So, Madhur, maybe this is ridiculously simplistic, but for many people, and I have to admit for me, uh, you think Indian food and you just think Indian food. But, of course, that would be, that's like saying European food. Yeah, you know? exactly. Give me, a, in a very quick primer, the four or five regions and, and their distinctions, if we are out and about, especially in Britain where we have some good options. Well, Gujarati food, uh -huh. which I love. If you're a vegetarian, look no further. Huh. This is the best place. They will cook with curry leaves, which give it, their food a lot of aroma. They will cook with mustard seeds. They will cook sometimes food that is slightly sweet uh -huh. as well. Gujarati. Yeah, Gujarati. Okay. So that's that's one cuisine. They have great snack foods. Gujarati. Okay, then then me to Punjabi food, you will get almost everywhere. That is the North Indian food that has become high street food. Ah, so that's your basic generic Indian food that is, is Punjabi. It starts with the Punjabi. So you have the chickpeas that are everywhere. Hardy food. Hardy food. Right. Uh, and wonderful. You'll have the spinach. You'll Punjab. have the mustard greens. So that is one big cuisine. Okay. Then generally, South Indian cuisine. Mm -hmm. It's more from Tamil Nadu, mm -hmm. I would say, but it has the dosas, which are the gorgeous pancakes, which everyone must have. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been speaking with Madhur Jaffrey. Her book is At Home with Madhur Jaffrey. Madhur, is there a golden memory that's edible from your childhood that, that you can create by going to an Indian restaurant in Britain? Is, there, is it possible to get the kind of magical comfort food that takes you back to your childhood? I don't know if you can get it in a restaurant. However, okay. if you'd cook it at home, how would you do I that? I wouldn't cook it. What it would, would you, be a mango. It be? it would be a lovely ripe mango, cooled, chilled with ice, and you just cut into it, and it would be an Alfonso mango, and you would cut into it and it would be satiny and smooth, smoother than a peach, and slightly sweet, and a little hint of sourness. That would be my perfect Indian memory. Madhur Jaffrey. Thank you for joining us, and uh, best wishes in your work. Thank you very much for having me. We have a link to favorite recipes from Madhur Joffrey in this week's show details. That's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. By the way, thanks to Seattle Arts and Lectures for arranging today's visit with Miss Joffrey. Next, we'll hear how there's a lot more than you might expect that goes into producing a decent cup of coffee with a broker who travels to the farms and villages of the world's coffee-growing regions. We're at 877-333-7425. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. Coffee is a favorite part of my daily routine, and I bet there's a good chance the same's true for you. Our next guest on Travel with Rick Steves is here to explain how the beans you brew can actually make a difference all around the world. Dean Sykon's a coffee broker from Massachusetts. He travels to the world's coffee-grown regions in Africa, Latin America, and Asia, all in search of fair trade coffee. 
to include in his own brand called Dean's Beans. Dean's written a book called Java Tracker, Dispatches from the World of Fairtrade Coffee. He wrote it to explain how global issues affect coffee growers in the most remote corners of the world and how these same issues are part of what's in your cup. Dean, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. It's great to be here. Coffee is a big industry, isn't it? I don't think people realize what a, what a vast industry it is. No, coffee is the second most heavily traded commodity in the world, second only to oil. And there are about 30 million coffee-growing families around the equator and a belt of 30 degrees north and south. That's where all the coffee in the world is grown. 30 million coffee-growing families. Now, mm-hmm. just like there's a dark side to the oil industry, I would imagine it's not all Juan Valdez with a nice mustache and a big smile and a clean shirt. Uh, what, do, what do we need to know about coffee as we stoke this industry? Well, Juan Valdez is the Madison Avenue version of what a coffee farmer is. It's not the reality. Coffee farmers are the poorest producers generally on the planet because they don't sell directly. They sell through layers and layers and layers of middlemen. And often coffee that we have to pay 20 bucks for, or in the case of some large coffee companies that shall remain nameless, $25, $26 a pound, those farmers may only be getting 20 cents or 30 Whoa. cents a pound. Is coffee generally picked by families and, and small co-ops and then sold to big companies, or are there vast plantations where you just have plantation workers producing huge amounts of coffee? About 90% of all the coffee in the world is grown on pieces of land about one acre or less. I never so dreamed. small families. That's right. And that's why they can't access the market directly. So one of the things that I've been doing for the last 20 years is helping small farmers organize into democratic cooperatives so that together they can access the markets directly and they can have buying power and negotiating power. They can get credit more easily. A very, very successful model for all those small-scale farmers around the world. Now, at my church, they're selling fair trade coffee after the service, and, you know, everybody thinks this is a nice thing to buy fair trade coffee. I don't even know what fair trade means. What am I doing when I buy fair trade coffee as opposed to just going down to the grocery store and getting something that's more cleverly marketed and not, not so expensive? Fair trade was created specifically to help these small-scale farmers around the world. The farmers on their side organize into democratic cooperatives which allows them all the things I've told you about, greater access to credit, direct access to markets, quality control, Hmm. things that they just can't do as small individual farmers. On our side, the people who participate in fair trade, they say, okay, if you guys organize into cooperatives and follow the rules, we guarantee that we will never pay you less than a living wage for your coffee, Hmm. which currently, I think it's $1.60. Now, the market price for coffee in the world right now is $1.20. And in some years, it's 80 cents. So by guaranteeing that we'll never pay less than $1.60, the farmers can plan for the future. They can keep their kids in school. It really has meaning on the ground in the lives of people. $1.60 doesn't sound like a lot to us, mm-hmm. but if it's doubling your annual income, that does mean a lot. So are you satisfied then that when somebody is you know, selling genuine fair trade coffee, that that actually makes a better life for the people who grew it? Well, 99% of the time it does. Well, that's good Uh, enough for me then, yeah. Yeah. In my experience, in all the villages that I've worked in over these 20 years, I've seen real change in people's lives. I've seen kids go to college from a community for the first time. Okay, what's the downside of going fair trade? Am I going to compromise on taste? No, not at all. In fact, in the last five or even eight years the fair trade cooperatives have been winning the cupping competitions all over the world against all the plantations, against everybody else. So quality was once an issue when fair trade got right. started 20 years ago, yeah. but now not at all. Do you pay a little more for fair trade coffee? The consumer? Mm-hmm. It depends on the roaster. So do you have to pay more for it? No. In some places, will you pay more for it? Yes. Why is that? Largely scale. Because most fair traders are relatively small companies. But you could be big scale and get your hands on fair trade coffee? Oh, absolutely. Starbucks is, I think, 3% fair trade, which makes them the largest fair trade organization. Could conceivably Starbucks just go fair trade and, you know, bump up the price another quarter and and change the world? (laughs) Thank you for asking. I've been telling them for 20 years 
that if you were fair trade for 100% of your purchases, you could be the greatest force for good on this planet. What is their practical reason for not doing it? There must be a, a distribution inefficiency that would complicate their world. That's right. In Economics 101, you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. But the reality on the ground is Starbucks buys from some of the same cooperatives that I buy. They just don't pay the fair trade price because they don't have to. Oh, so they have that option. Well, that's the whole Banana yeah. Republic thing. I mean, when somebody you only has it. one product uh, export, uh, the people who buy it can manipulate their, their livelihood. Yeah. I think the solution is going to be uh, consumers yes, consuming is. in the way that really believes they can shape their world by how they spend their money. Right. But, you know, the problem with that is that companies know that and they spend a lot of time and energy creating marketing programs to address that mm. so that the consumer walks away feeling that they've done the right yeah. thing. Yeah, that Juan Valdez is such a happy family man, isn't he? <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Dean Saikon. And Dean has written a book called Java Tracker, Dispatches from the World of Fair Trade Coffee. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Matt is on the line in Chicago. Matt, thanks for your call. Yes, hi, gentlemen. I think it's a fascinating topic. I guess my question, Dean, is, is my wife and I have traveled extensively. We love coffee. And at this point, we really only experience kind of the cafe cultures of the world. And I think it's kind of a logical next step to take a dive into some of these plantations and go kind of farther afield. But as you know, a lot of the locations that do great coffee, there's an accessibility issue, safety issues, kind of you want to go somewhere authentic that isn't too touristy. So what would your suggestion be as to looking into some kind of travel to that end that is authentic and of quality and accessible and safe? Most cooperatives around the world are very happy to entertain visitors. And you can contact them directly. Language, of course, is an issue. If you speak Spanish, you have access to all the Latin American co-ops. The co-ops in Africa mostly speak English. But it's really a lot easier than you think. And a lot of co-ops these days are trying to set up eco-accommodations because they want to encourage people to come and visit and learn and spend some money. So I really think you'll hmm. easily be able to find how to get down there and, and really satisfy yourself looking for that authentic coffee experience in the wild. So in the same way that you can spend money enjoying wine culture in France, you can go to Ethiopia or Colombia and enjoy, you know, splicing in some travel experiences that relate to coffee in your, in your adventure. Oh, absolutely. And as I say, coffee communities that are organized for this sort of thing are very, very open to having visitors. Dean, talk about Ethiopia, because I've talked to a lot of people that have traveled in Ethiopia, and they've, they've actually enjoyed these rituals related to coffee growing. Well, Ethiopia is a very special place because coffee was originated in Ethiopia. Coffee is an integral part of Ethiopian culture. In many countries, it's merely a crop. And sometimes it's not even a nice crop, depending on the conditions. But in Ethiopia, it's part and parcel of the culture. So in Ethiopian families, all farm families and many in the city, they start their day by roasting little bits of green coffee beans in a home roaster, actually just a little barbecue with a wok on top, more or less. And then they grind it and make three cups of coffee, three little teacups of coffee. And they drink each cup with a blessing attached to it. And that's how they start their day. And it's the only country in the world where people do that. And so it's very unique and it's a beautiful thing to see if you go to Ethiopia. So if Matt travels to Ethiopia, he could very reasonably be starting his day with locals singing to the beans. Absolutely. It's funny you mention that because the best cup of coffee I've had in the last two weeks here is at a little boutique shop and it was an Ethiopian bean of some sort that was magical and it got me thinking... Wouldn't it be great to travel over there? And then I started to think realistically, you know, how am I going to travel, leave my two kids, go over to Ethiopia? And so I started to look into this with my wife, and that's why I wanted to, to call in and ask Dean, you know, if there was somewhere that he felt was a country that really was maybe a little more accessible, if, whether it's Costa Rica or Nicaragua or Colombia, with a little bit of safety in mind, right. but mm -hmm. also still authentic. Okay, a trip to Latin America can be a five- to seven-day trip fully satisfying. If you're going to Africa or Asia... It's 10 days to two weeks easily. So if you're going to be leaving your kids at home for a quick trip, mm -hmm. then Central America is the place. And if you're going to Central America, personally, I think Guatemala is the place because Guatemala has the most vivid and accessible indigenous culture. And a lot of people would be nervous about going to Guatemala because of recent history. You've been there. What is the vibe in Guatemala if you're a tourist? Oh, my goodness, not at all. If you're going to Guatemala... 
the danger is in Guatemala City. Mm-hmm. It's not in the coffee areas. You know, that's what I found in San Salvador and in Managua. I went down Absolutely. there. And the cities, I was really uncomfortable in the cities. But you get in the countryside, it's a whole different thing. That's right. And people are very open and very uh, happy for you to be there. Mm-hmm. And I just find the people lovely. The cultures are so interesting and colorful and different. Matt, thanks for your call. Thank you. So excited. Take care, guys. Okay. And Steve is on the line in West Lafayette, Indiana. Steve, thanks for your call. Thank you. Um, I've been on one of those ecotourism projects and very much appreciated being able to live with the folks who are growing coffee. They set up a cinder block place where you could feel some of the Western comforts, but it was a, it was a great way to live with the people who were there. Now, Steve, this was in Nicaragua, is that right? This is in Nicaragua, yes. What what did you conclude that a coffee drinker who's sort of thoughtful and, and cares about the world should know? One of the things that uh, became immediately apparent to me is the many levels at which uh, fair trade coffee blesses the economies of the cultures that it's involved with. I got to witness uh, local cooperatives where we saw bridges that were built in order to help move coffee more easily to market. We saw a school that was a brand new school that was built there that was built from some of the profits from the fair trade coffee and then an ecotourism project as well that brought in people. And now, Steve, as an, as an enlightened coffee consumer in Indiana, how do you live your values when you drink coffee? Mostly, I just really try to talk with people about the blessings of fair trade coffee. One of the dynamics of fair trade that people don't know about is that fair trade actually opens the door in these communities, not only to the fair trade premium that we pay, but because the communities become organized, it opens the door for other organizations such as Oxfam and others to come in and do allied nonprofit development work because now there's an organized community that they can deal with. And so a lot of the schools, a lot of the well systems, the water systems, a lot of the other infrastructure that gets built in these communities and helps raise communities' ability to raise themselves comes from the allies of fair trade who come in once the door's been opened. Hmm. That's very important. But I also wanted to say one word about ecotourism, since Steve raised uh, staying in the cement house. You know, a lot of the coffee farmers around the world are really trying to provide accommodations for people. In one place in Nahuala, Guatemala, I went there to be the first ecotourist of a cooperative I work with. And so they were very proud to bring me in late one night. I got in late and it was pouring rain and they led me to my accommodations and they had taken the old jailhouse and put bunk beds in it. So I went in and they locked me in the cell for the night because, you know, uh, well, this is our first tourist and we want to make sure he's safe. And in the morning they forgot I was there because (laughs) ecotourism was a new thing in Nahuala. And so I spent half the day behind bars in Nahuala, basically yelling at anybody who walked by, which wasn't very many people, hey, get me out. <laughs> I'm thought, innocent. I thought you were a nutcase <laughs> in, the, in the prison there yelling. Yeah, it was great. Steve, thanks for your call. Sure. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Dean Saikon, and Dean writes a book called Java Trekker, Dispatches from the World of Fair Trade Coffee. Dean, you write pretty vividly about who picks the coffee. Uh, there's 30 million people, but in your mind, who's picking the coffee? It's a family. It's a traditional family that owns a small plot of land, less than an acre. They have a small house. They may or may not have electricity or running water. And coffee is the sole cash crop they have. So the father's out there, the mom's out there. Hmm. And in fair trade cooperatives, the kids who are over 15 when they're not in school on summer break, if it coincides with the harvest, they can work. Very, very different from non-fair trade families where... Oftentimes, kids don't go to school because the families don't have the money, and then the kids pick coffee. How can it be that in some of these great coffee-grown regions, when you go there as a traveler, all you get is Nescafe? Because coffee is an export crop. It's not part of the culture, except in places like Brazil and Ethiopia, where it's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. In many of these other places, for example, Papua New Guinea, coffee was introduced in the 1950s. Huh. That is so counterintuitive. You go to these places famous for coffee... And you can't get a decent cup of coffee. It's all exported, and I guess it shouldn't surprise us. Dean, 
if you're traveling around the country and you're accustomed to going to a nice um, coffee shop and getting a nice latte, and you want to consume in a thoughtful way, which chains, which famous uh, retailers of coffee would you patronize? Fair trade coffee is now available in large chains. It's available in local cafes. It's everywhere. But oftentimes you have to ask for it. Ah. Some of the large chains don't serve it unless right. you ask for so it. So if you ask for it, it'll become more prevalent. It's just like That's a lot correct. of things. Right. It's consumer-driven. When you have that fair trade label, it, I know it can't be perfect, but generally it's not bogus, is it? I mean, it, does it really no. mean it's fair trade? If that fair trade label is on the bag, so far you can say, yes, the coffee in it was bought under fair trade terms, and you can feel comfortable with that. You know, it kind of comes back to ignorance is not bliss. I mean, you can take the initiative and learn about the reality of how you consume and how that impacts real people, and then you can consume with the notion that you can shape the world by how you, where you put your money. Well, in some places you have that very direct opportunity where your purchase can really make a difference, and in a lot of things you can't. Mm -hmm. But right now, coffee, tea, sugar, cocoa, chocolate... There are a number of things where you really can say, my purchasing makes a difference and I'm voting with my dollar. Dean Saikon, author of Java Tracker, owner and founder of Dean's Beans, thanks so much. Why don't we just finish by, you've traveled all over the coffee-growing world and the coffee-consuming world. Where can we enjoy a coffee that is perhaps your favorite cup of coffee in the far corners of this world? Let's take a voyage as far away as we can get. We'll go to Papua New Guinea. So I was the first coffee trader to go up into these mountains, and the people were so excited that they walked for 30, 40 miles to come together and create a ceremony. There were 7,000 people. Half of them were naked. Half of them were painted with feathers, and it was just mind-blowing. The funny thing is, very few of these people had ever tasted their own coffee. So part of the ceremony was me preparing coffee for as many people as we could, them drinking the coffee and them performing these incredible dances and singing about harvesting the coffee and protecting their families. And wow. Dean Saikon, thank you so much. I want to go to Papua New Guinea right now and have a nice cup of coffee. Enjoy. There's more from Dean Saikon in this week's program extras on our website where you'll hear Dean explain why organic coffee beans seem to taste better. Plus, Madhur Joffrey tells us why she considers mustard seeds to be the Jekyll and Hyde of spices. You'll find those program extras to this week's show in the radio pages at ricksteves.com. Next up, fellow listeners join us for their travel tips and to follow up on a conversation we had a while back about the kindness of strangers in our travels. We're at 877-333-7425. And by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. There's a lot we can learn from the experiences and the enthusiasm of our fellow travelers. We'll share some emails where listeners respond to what they've heard on the show in a moment. Let's check in right now on the phone at 877-333-7425. Garrett's on the line from Chicago with an important tip for first-time travelers to Spain. Garrett, thanks for joining us. Yeah, um, actually, um, I made a mistake of not wearing a money belt in one of my first trips to Europe. A friend of mine went to Barcelona, and we were walking around the Gothic Quarter, the Barri Gothic, and the streets are very windy, they're almost labyrinthine, and we were just so overwhelmed by the sights, and we weren't paying attention. So a couple of um, Roma women, older women, came up to us, and they started distracting us. You know, they were begging for money. And they were also waving, like, newspapers in front of our faces. So we thought they were just, you know, begging for money. So we said no. And then a couple of blocks later, as we were walking, a couple of people behind us told us, you know, I think they got your wallet. And I made a mistake of putting my wallet on my front coat pocket. And sure enough, my wallet, including my passport, which I shouldn't have been carrying anyway, were gone. So... Now, wait a minute. So there's a couple of gypsy women, and you've got your wallet and your passport in your inside coat pocket in front of you on your chest. Yes, yeah. How, how did they get their fingers there without you knowing it? I, I don't know. To this day, I still don't know how they did it. They, they were waving newspapers in front of us, 
and they were, you know, begging for money, and they looked really frantic. So they okay, really distracted so, us. So two, yeah. so two things, or many things. They're expert at distracting you. They've always got a newspaper or something that is an object that gets in your way and obscures your vision. And they come on as beggars, and they're not beggars. That's their front. They're fast-fingered pickpockets. Right, yeah. And you were in the most dangerous neighborhood of the most dangerous city from a pickpocketing point of view. The Gothic Quarter in Barcelona is, you're not going to get knifed or mugged. I've never been ripped off there. But boy, if you let your guard down, you are likely to get pickpocketed. Uh, You know, you you kind of poo-poo that advice. But when you get there, you're going to have people distracting you all around you. Uh, A lot of times they've got children. Did these women have children with them? Yeah, I learned the hard way. So luckily, though, like we tried to retrace our steps. And we, by some sort of chance, we were able to catch up with them. And they saw us coming, and they didn't run. They just, you know, gave me my wallet back, you know, money and everything. With the money and everything? So yeah. So it's kind of like catch and release. Right, yeah. So, if, <laughs> you know, they didn't even put up a fight or no, didn't they... argue with us. They just huh. gave us my wallet. <laughs> <laughs> well, the lesson, wear a money belt. I mean, if they're going to get your valuables out of the money belt, you've been stripped and mugged. And, uh, you know, your money doesn't really matter at that point. Yeah, now I really carry a money belt all the time. And just yeah. for um, as a backup, I also put some extra cash on my socks. I just think it's it's great sport to go out in the streets when you know there's <laughs> pickpockets out there, as long as you know what's going on, and uh, just kind of see what's happening. Every time there's a shell game going on, there's pockets being picked, you know, and every time there's a commotion, if there's people shoving each other, everybody gathers around, and there's pockets being picked, and there's all sorts of teams out there, and they are so clever, and uh, a sharp person like Garrett from Chicago can have a woman take the wallet right out of his breast pocket and not even know it. Yeah, and it's so much easier now to wear a money belt, too. Cause <laughs> it's sort of, you don't have to have your guards up. You could just concentrate on enjoying the sights and taking the whole experience of being there. That's a very important point right there. She, she got the peace of mind to be immersed in the setting without being vulnerable to the um, con artist and fast-fingered pickpockets that thrive on us tourists that are gawking up at the top of that church spire and not realizing that somebody's got their hand in our pocket. Yeah, you know, if you have your guards up all the time, it gets pretty heavy after a while. So. I agree, Garrett. Okay, well, thanks for the tip. That's well, very good advice. thanks for taking my call. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. And Emily's on the line from Orange City in Iowa. Emily, how are you? Great, thank you. Now, you've been doing some traveling? Yes, I have. I love to travel. Really? Tell us about your latest trip. Well, this summer we went to um, lots of different countries around Europe for about eight or nine weeks. Yeah? And we went to, like, Greece and France. No, this is with your family? Yes, as well as my mom and dad. Your mom and dad. How old are you? I'm 13. You're 13. So what's that, like, eighth grade or something? Yep, eighth grade. Man, you beat me. I didn't get a passport until I was 14. Oh, really? I got one when I was seven. Oh, gosh. Okay, well, now tell me what was the best part of your trip when you went with your mom and dad around Europe in eight weeks to a whole bunch of different countries. Yeah. Well, one of the funniest things was we stayed in a castle in France, and it was called Chateau de Saint-Loup. Uh-huh. And what happened is we were up there. We are on, like, the highest level. It's like a medieval keep. Uh-huh. And it was starting to get dark, and it didn't have lights and stuff. It was just some furniture, like a bed, and we had, like, about six candles. Wow. And it was looking over the moat. And it was kind of weird, because all you have is the candles. You don't have, like, lights or So, wait a minute. You're in, a, you're in Chateau de Saint-Loup. This is a 15th century castle in France, and you're in the highest room in the keep, and you only have a candle. Yes. Wow. What was that like? It was kind of weird like you have like shadows on the walls and stuff but my mom and i we like played games and some different things it was really fun was it scary yeah well actually the scary part is when it started to get dark um i hear something and i'm like what is that and we looked up and it's a bat flying around and it's getting closer and closer and it was in our room it was really scary so we ran downstairs and we asked the owner of the castle if we could have a different room so we got to the next room, and the windows were open and stuff, and we thought that we were, there would be a bat in there. So we FaceTimed my grandma to ask her what she thought we should do, and she said, just pretend it's a hummingbird. Oh, no, that's nice advice from your grandma. Did it work? Well, no, it didn't work. <laughs> it was a bat, it, even if you printed it was a hummingbird. Yeah. So we kind of, well, this was my mom's idea, but we ended up sleeping in the car. 
No. Oh, so the bat got the room and you got the car. Yeah. Okay, well, that's too bad. Yeah. Now, you know, there's a lot of parents that are thinking, should we take our 13-year-old daughter or son to Europe? And uh, they do it, and some of the kids have fun, and some of the kids don't have fun. And what advice would you give to other parents about how to make the trip really meaningful and at the same time fun if they're going to spend all the money and take all the energy to take their kids to Europe when they're like in eighth grade? Well, I'd say like if you um, are taking them, they should kind of help be able to help plan the trip because mm. that was really fun for me. And then we did stuff that the whole family liked. So oh. a, a lot of parents might just kind of bully you into doing all the stuff they want to do, and then you feel like you're kind of a prisoner. Yeah, you kind of have to have an even, even mix of, like, what everybody in okay. the family wants to do. So, and then you have a better attitude all around. Right. You'll, you'll do stuff your parents want to do, and they'll do stuff you want to do, and everybody smiles. Yeah, and it all ends up being fun. That's good. Okay, did you write a journal? Um, we wrote travel emails back to our family and stuff, and that seemed to work really really cool. And you could collect all those and that, you could assemble that into kind of a, a journal for your own souvenir. Mm-hmm. Because, we put know, it in like a binder. Maybe 50 years from now, that'll be your most prized possession. It probably will. <laughs> all right. Are you going to go on another trip sometime? I hope so. Will you call us up after your trip and give us a report? For sure. All right. Emily from Orange City in Iowa. Happy travels and thanks for uh, inspiring us to take our kids to Europe. Yeah. Au revoir. Au revoir. We don't see them with Tell us about your travels or your thoughts on what you hear each week here on Travel with Rick Steves at 877-333-RICK. By email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. You can also interact with us and find more from our guests in the radio section of ricksteves.com. William in Harrison, New York, wrote us an email in response to a segment we did about experiencing the kindness of strangers in our travels. William wrote, Three years ago, I made a road trip across Oregon. In Astoria, I stopped at a farmer's market. When I approached a produce stand, the proprietor saw me looking at her produce and went into her spiel. I told her I was on a road trip and was just passing through, and so I really wasn't interested in, you know, buying some raw veggies. She gently took my hand and showed me that in the corner of her stall, there was a little gas burner topped by a wok. She told me that she'd gladly cook up any veggies I bought. She pulled up an old chair and had me sit in it, gave me a cup of hot tea, and proceeded to cook me a bunch of beautiful fresh greens and rice for my lunch. When I finished, she gave me some more and even packed up a little extra for the road. (laughs) The food was excellent, made better by the fact that it was prepared with TLC. She charged me about $5, the cost of the veggies, and wouldn't take a penny more. She insisted that she treated me so well because many people come to the market looking for a bargain and have no regard for the vendors. She said I was different because I engaged her in conversation. I've traveled all across the U.S. and in 29 different foreign countries and have always found that locals, big city folk as well as small town people, are usually quite welcoming to strangers who travel with respect for the local culture and reach out and connect. Words of Wisdom from William in Harrison, New York. Thanks, William. And Gary in Bothell, Washington, has also been inspired by our Kindness of Strangers segments, and he sends us this email. My daughter is fairly severely impaired with Down syndrome. My wife and I started traveling overseas with her when she was just four years old and were frequently stopped by people who admired us because they had family members also with Down syndrome, and they felt that traveling with them overseas would be nearly impossible. They said seeing us inspired them to rethink this. On a trip in Holland, I vividly remember one of our bus drivers who, when we got off the bus, he said to us through our Dutch translator, I really hope you like our country. We have so many people in our country like your daughter, and it's really important to us that they be a full part of our society. If there's anything I can do to make your stay easier, please let me know. Well, that was many years ago. I still remember with deep admiration and respect the many, many places in the world where people have gone out of their way to help us with our daughter. Besides encountering the kindness of strangers, we can be a source of kindness ourselves every day, and it's a way to really make our travels go so much smoother. After hearing our interview with writer Adam Gopnik, David from Bellevue, Washington, sent us a comment that relates to the topic. David's on the phone right now to talk about the perspective of people who work in the front lines of the travel industry, people like flight attendants and personnel at airport gates. David, thanks for your call. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So what, what is your thought about that, uh, the, the perspective of people we deal with in our travels? Well, 
I'm just very sympathetic with people who are sometimes put in the position of having to enforce a policy that's not really their decision, <laughs> but which irritates a lot of travelers. <laughs> and uh, w- one of the experiences that, that uh, reminds me of that is once when I was involuntarily bumped from an airline flight, which is a practice that I really think is unconscionable, but uh, for some reason it hit a large number of people in the flight I was on. So I was very disappointed at the ticket counter to get the news, well, you can't get on this flight, and they tried to make arrangements for me. But while I was sitting there waiting to find out what what happened, I could watch a number of other people walk up to the counter and see them react to the same news I'd just gotten. And I saw a lot of resignation, but I also saw some people who got really kind of abusive with Mm -hmm. the, the staff there, although I was equally irritated and annoyed at the airline, I went out of my way with the staff to say, now, I'm not angry at you, <laughs> but I'm angry about this situation. Right. <laughs> and and it just made it a little bit easier to get through things that way. Yeah, I've, I've encountered the same thing at, at airports, and it, it seems like some passengers have read a book about how, how you can be very forceful in that line and get better service than everybody else who's in the same quandary. And I think it is helpful to remember that, boy, they're doing their very best to sort this out, and there's probably 20 people in the same boat, and it'd be best if we all just kind of sat back and let them figure it out as best they could for everybody. Right, right. I've been traveling a long time and a lot of good and bad experiences, but to me, it's still something special, and I don't want to make it worse than it has to be yeah. by the way I react to it. I'm impressed by how, how many people are... are just seems like they're looking for a reason to complain when they are actually flying. And I always, you know, feel like, okay, if the legroom is tight or if, or if the food's not any good or something like that, or if there's who knows what problem there is in the flight, still you're flying at, what, 600 miles an hour, you're getting all the way to Europe in eight hours. If if I land safely on the day I hope to, I think, it, I think, it's, I think it's been a huge success considering how economic it is to fly these days. So uh, it's just an attitude thing that I think helps make your travels go better, and it's just a little more civil, isn't it? Yes, yes. David, thanks so much for your insights. You're welcome. Thank you. Happy travels. And Andy's on the line in Houston, Texas. He joins us now to tell us about an experience he had in Yellowstone National Park in the winter. Andy, thanks for calling. Hey, thanks, Rick. Good to talk to you. Yes, I had been to Yellowstone twice, one the summer and one in the fall, and a friend asked me to go along with him on a shoot in the wintertime, and I had great misgivings. I said, you know, what, what could possibly be of interest in the winter? And I was just unbelievably blown away by how absolutely beautiful everything was in the winter. The uh, wildlife was out. The geysers and the geothermals were just more accented in the cold air than you could possibly have imagined. And it was something I thought was just absolutely fantastic. So now this was, you said it was a shoot. Uh, was it a photo shoot? Or are you actually uh, shooting up all the wildlife there in the National Park? No, <laughs> I'm, I'm a photographer. I'm 72 and I love fine art photography. Okay. The images were spectacular. <laughs> My goodness, you know, you're right. When I think of Yellowstone, if I was going to go to Yellowstone, I'd probably want to go, you know, in the in the spring or summer or fall. But you went in the dead of winter and liked it. Well, yeah, there are far fewer tourists there. For sure. You almost come down right to the, to the road where you are, and they were in tremendous abundance. It was just such a wonderful, wonderful time. It's probably peak time for the for the animals because they, they probably make themselves scarce when all the tourists are there and everything. But in the winter, they probably retake their favorite places. Right, instead of posing for their, their <laughs> you know, close-up for Mr. DeMille, they're out there in the wintertime, and they just walk right down the road in front of you. It's just uh, astounding. And I had two, you know, good recommendations. That is getting the, the Senior Gold Passport, which allows you free access to all the national parks in the United States. It's something really worthwhile having. Wow. And, in, and also the uh, Gardner is the town nearest the northern entrance of the park. And in that little town, they have a Best Western there, which had the most amazing breakfast I have ever had. <laughs> it, it even surpassed the Snow Lodge down in the Old Faithful section of the park, which was open as well. What was so good about it? Oh, it was, it was just sumptuous. It was in abundance. Everything was done beautifully. Of course, the uh, Sun Lodge had something I'd never had before, and they had Bavarian hot chocolate mm. in, a, in a cup about the size of a soup bowl, and that was just absolutely phenomenal. Andy, I love that idea for a senior. Get that senior gold passport, and you can just, you got free run of all the parks? All the national parks, yeah. It saves you a lot of money. 
And uh, you just buy it once, and again, I'm 72, and I've been using this thing for years. It sounds like you're a pretty serious photographer. Tell us, what, what are some of the highlights of shooting at Yellowstone in the winter? Well, I guess one of the pictures which really uh, came out beautifully done is usually buffalo or bison are down at ground level. And we spotted a small group, of a whole family of bison way, way up on a ridge right before a huge mountain face. And uh, I had just the right lens to capture them from about a half a mile away. And it just came out spot on. The colors were great. It was super focused. You know, this is an 800-millimeter lens. It's gigantic. But for that particular photo, it was absolutely ideal. Man, a beautiful, crisp morning, a marvelous oh. breakfast at Best Western, an 800-power zoom lens, Yellowstone in the winter. Life is good. I recommend Yellowstone at any time of the year, but winter was just spectacular, a real surprise. Andy, that's an inspiration. Thank you so much for um, getting us thinking about enjoying national parks in the winter with all the animals and none of the tourists. Uh, thanks for having me on your show. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Buffalo free, oh my brother, the wolf, my lover, the moon, oh the little ones, oh the joy that I feel, oh the love in my heart, a wilderness song, a Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to Peter Acker at the Armadillo Audio Group in Amherst, Massachusetts for studio help this week. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You'll find more online, including links to our guests, program extras, and a chance to join us as a caller on the show. Look in the radio section of ricksteves.com and join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. Each year, Rick Steves' tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. Choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalogue and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.